Welcome to 2819. I'm Sandra Dimez. And I'm Daniel Almaguer. And today's topic is about the difference between human and Neanderthal souls. And we're going to be hearing specifically from professor of English and philosophy, Kyle Keltz. Yes. In Everyday Apologetics, Kyle Keltz will offer answers to some common atheistic challenges. And in Science Faith Connection, Jeff Zerink will also chat with Kyle on whether Neanderthals have human souls. First up is going to be Culture Talk. Sandra will be interviewing Kyle on whether humans have souls or not. So let's check it out. Welcome to Culture Talk, where we talk about culturally relevant topics that you can use to start conversations about your faith. And I am joined today with Dr. Kyle Keltz. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. You are a professor of English and philosophy at South Plains College, and we are going to be talking about kind of a fun question. How do we know that humans have souls? So I'm very yeah. excited to talk about this because we're talking about souls. It's a, it's a cool topic. Um, <laughs> so as we start to like explore this topic of, of souls, some people might say, is it even rational to believe that humans have souls? So how do you respond to that? Oh, um, there's several philosophical arguments for the existence mm -hmm. of the soul, but one of my favorite is kind of the almost the opposite of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I would argue that it's actually irrational to believe that you don't have a soul. Mm -hmm. um, uh, C.S. Lewis is famous for formulating an argument along these lines. We, we call it the argument from reason. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote about it in uh, Miracles. And uh, what he emphasizes is that uh, rationality, right? When you when you say, "Well, I looked at the evidence and I believe this," mm -hmm. uh, what we what we assume in in the rational process is that uh, you you are able to understand the evidence and that you make a decision. Do I believe this evidence warrants this decision or this decision? Mm -hmm. And so you make a conclusion on a rational basis. Now, if you don't have a soul though, and you're completely physical, mm -hmm. an issue with that is that if you are completely physical, then uh, everything about you is going to be controlled by the laws of nature. So even that would include all the decisions that you've made. Mm -hmm. So if you don't think you have a soul, you say something like, you know, I, I don't believe we have souls. Well, an issue with that is that you reach that conclusion for physical reasons, not for rational reasons. It's only, we think that only if you have this immaterial soul, that's this intellect and a will that's not subject to the laws of nature, mm -hmm. are you able to have free will and able to reason to conclusions based on evidence. Hmm, interesting. So when we talk about it being irrational to believe that we don't have a soul, then how do we jump to the next conclusion? Okay, we do have souls and it is more rational to believe that we do have souls. How do we make a distinction between how humans behave and that sort of soulish behavior and how maybe some hominids behave and if that is also soulish behavior or demonstrating that they have a soul. Oh yes, I, and, and this is one thing I love talking to my students about in, in our philosophy classes is, is uh, you know, uh, the difference between humans and animals mm -hmm. and today we talk about the difference between humans and and Neanderthals mm -hmm. and hominids and stuff like that actually goes pretty far back in Western philosophy. Um, the, the Greek philosopher Aristotle in uh, a work called On the Soul, mm -hmm. uh, De Anima, he, he argued that the, the main difference between humans and non-human animals 
is that humans are able to take in uh, universal abstract concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's an interesting argument that philosophers still defend today called the storage problem argument. And it mainly revolves around how are human beings able to understand, to know, you know, basically to store universal concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and when I say universal concepts, I mean things like justice or triangularity or even like things like redness, you know. Mm. And uh, uh, to explain it, uh, one thing when I'm talking uh, to my students about universals, uh, when we talk about metaphysics, is uh, I, I present an example of like a fire truck and an apple, mm -hmm. right? And I say, okay, so this fire truck is red, this apple is red, but uh, noting that physical things can't be in more than one place at one time, what would we say redness is, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, everyone realizes, okay, well, redness itself can't be some physical thing. It can't be some particular. It's this universal, abstract, immaterial concept. Mm -hmm. Well, now an issue is you can't store a universal in a physical thing, right? Because if you have this concept, this abstract form mm -hmm. in some particular physical thing, then it just is that thing, right? Right. You know, when you look at a triangle, for example, you see a triangle, you don't see triangularity, mm -hmm. but you abstract that concept of triangular from triangle. Mm -hmm. So anyway, long story short, the difference between animals and, and non-human animals mm -hmm. is that we can take in these universals and we think that we have to have, there has to be something immaterial about us to be able to store that, right? right. Because we know these concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's not just information flowing through us that, w that we don't have a grasp on. And uh, that's not only shows us that we do have a soul, but it, it shows the main difference between us and animals or us and Neanderthals or something mm -hmm. like that. We have this ability to take in universal abstract concepts and you can use that ability to not only understand things, but also to apply meaning. Mm -hmm. So you can, that's what makes language possible. Yeah. That's what makes technology possible, art, mm -hmm. religion, all these things that necessarily involve abstract thinking. Right, so we're talking about then the distinction between animals and humans would be kind of that symbolic uh, uh, ability to um, use symbols and to have abstract thought, correct? Yes, and uh, theologically, mm -hmm. uh, maybe even more importantly, uh, the idea that we have an immaterial soul, mm -hmm. like I mentioned earlier, it, it makes it possible so we are moral. You know, we have mm -hmm. a choice between our decisions, so there's one way we ought to act and one we ought, ought not to act. Mm -hmm. But also we think that because the soul is immaterial, it is something that can survive the death of our bodies and make the afterlife possible. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, a major difference between humans and animals is that we have souls and, and they don't. Or, or they don't have souls like we do anyways. Right. Well, there's a lot to talk about with this topic. And I know that you're gonna be talking with Jeff a little bit later on diving more into the topic of Neanderthal behavior and how that's distinct from, um, from humans, particularly from the scientific discoveries of uh, music and uh, oh, yeah. burials and such. But <laughs> I do wanna kind of wrap it up by asking like, how do we have this conversation with others if you're trying to share your faith with someone how do you use the topic of soul to do so? Oh yeah, and um, I think it has great application mm -hmm. uh, with apologetics, but, uh, but also uh, mainly in, in evangelism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if you're sharing your faith with someone or just, uh, just, in a, you know, just friends with someone or whatever out in public, uh, a lot of times when people are doing evangelism, they lead with the question, 
uh, what do you think happens when we die? Mm -hmm. Now in our culture, you're might, you might end up meeting a lot of people who are gonna say, absolutely nothing. I don't think anything happens when we die because we're just physical. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you, uh, you know, have a, a, a rudimentary grasp of some of these arguments for the existence of the soul, you can lead with that and at the very least, you know, put a rock in their shoe, have them mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, well, maybe there is more to me than just the material. Maybe I will survive the death of my body. And maybe that can lead to further conversations where you can, uh, you know, lead into the gospel mm -hmm. and, and other things. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. Again, it's a very deep topic, lots to unpack. If you want to hear more about this topic, go to reasons.org and search soul. Is Christianity really true? Is the Bible really reliable? These are the types of questions that skeptics and atheists ask. And I'm, I'm joined today by Dr. Kyle Keltz, who is a Christian scholar, who is a, a, a philosopher of religion, who teaches uh, English and philosophy at a, the collegiate level to help uh, engage uh, these questions. Now, Kyle, one of the, the atheists who raises these types of questions is a, a guy by the name of Dan Barker, who's a fairly well-known atheist. Some people say he's uh, one of the most well-known atheists in the United States, an ex-preacher who I think is a, the co-founder for uh, the Foundation for the Freedom from Religion or something like that, and yes. travels around the U.S. and does debates and, and lectures challenging the Christian faith. And, and you and Tricia Scribner uh, edited a book and then also contributed to a book called Answering the Music Man, uh, which is essentially engaging uh, some of Dan Barker's arguments against Christianity. Okay, so let's just m maybe give a, a thumbnail for, for how you re responded to each of those objections. So uh, one of them, again, was our faith and reason compatible. So uh, what's, what's Barker's complaint and then kind of in a in a bottom line how did you respond to that okay he he defines faith as a, a belief in something even though you know it to be false or a belief right. in spite of the evidence right and what I did in that chapter was I just showed that that is not what Christianity teaches right. uh, and you could actually find this out by with a quick Google search by the way I don't, it, it just amazes me that he yeah. he, he holds to this thesis but uh, I mean, the, the, in Christianity, for example, there are, there are three, there are at least three mature, developed views of the relationship between faith and reason uh, that you can see in the history of Christianity dating all the way back to the second century with like Tertullian mm -hmm. and, and other church fathers, like 150 AD and, and that, that far back. Yeah. So it was just, it was, it's almost embarrassing to see him say that this is what faith is and this is why I reject it. So what I did is I just showed that there's all these views and in, in, the, in the chapter I talk about uh, Thomas Aquinas's view of faith and reason, uh, a, a view called the synthesis of faith and reason view. So I explain the details of that in there and, and just show people what Christians actually believe about faith and reason. Right, and so, so Christians have long held that, that, that our faith should be rational, should be reasonable, Yes. right, if it is indeed true. Yes, uh, yeah, and so I've, uh, going along with Aquinas, he, he defines faith as taking something on, on the basis of an authority, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, reasoning is learning about the world through all the ways that we do, whether it's philosophy or science or other means. And he, he argues for like a three types of, uh, three types of truths. He says there's Truths of, of uh, truths of reason only. Those, these are truths like the atomic weight of oxygen or uh, 
-hmm. or the number of planets in the galaxy. Uh, truths of uh, faith and reason, these would be truths that uh, the Bible talks about, but also you could discover through mm -hmm. reason. So that'd be like God's existence or mm -hmm. uh, the existence of the soul. Or, or Jesus' resurrection. You can use philosophy. You can use history to to, to confirm these things. Uh, or then there's uh, uh, truths of faith only. These are things that he says. Well, we can't use philosophical arguments to to mm -hmm. determine this. It would be like the Trinity, yeah. or the hypostatic union. We can use reason to show that's not contradictory, but we can't use an yeah. argument to s do that. So, but whenever you when you learn the philosophy and all the apologetics, it, it makes it so that you're not taking the truths of faith and reason on faith. You know those things, and then it strengthens your faith whenever you believe things right. like the Trinity. And right. So it sounds like Aquinas had a pretty sophisticated perspective on 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 faith and reason and how we know things. Yes. Over. Uh, yeah. Uh, hundreds of years ago, and Dan Barker's presenting this like all Christians believe that faith is believing. Yeah. something you know to be false. Right. So it's just uh, uh, it's it's just sad, and we're just trying to clear up the misconceptions. Yeah. So uh, another chapter that, that you wrote is entitled, uh, Are God's Attributes Incoherent and Incompatible? So again, what, what's Dan Barker's complaint here, and then how did you engage his points? Uh, I, I really thought that uh, when Dan Barker... I think that when he talks about in Godless and his debates, when he starts talking about the attributes of God, it's 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 uh, this might be the most clearest time when he doesn't really understand what Christianity is teaching. So in 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 his book, he makes many complaints about the attributes of God. He doesn't think that they make sense in of themselves, and then he argues that it, it makes it even worse when you try to say that God is this and that at the same time. These things contradict each other. So, I mean, he, he makes many complaints that we don't really have time to cover all of them, but uh, I can talk about what he says about omniscience and omnipotence, for example. Sure. So, so omniscience, God is all-knowing. Um, an interesting thing he says is that if God is all-knowing, he needs to have like a picture or, or a concept of everything that exists in his mind. But if but that would mean that he would also need to have a, a picture, and he uses that word, a picture of himself in his mind. But then uh, that picture would need to have a picture of him in it. You know, it, it's like saying that you have a map of the entire world, but if it's really accurate, that would also that map would also need to have a map in it, and then that map would have a map. And he thinks that that is like goes to infinity and, and is, is some mm -hmm. kind of absurdity. Uh, so what I so what I do in the chapter on that part is I just I just clear up you know what, what do we think omniscience is mm -hmm. and and a classical understanding of omniscience is to just say that that God knows all existing things He knows um, and He knows what He could make you know uh, anything that He could conceivably make uh, to say that God is all knowing um, I think especially in this aspect. It just shows that he kind of has this misconception of who God is, because God, uh, and this isn't just wishful thinking. Philosophers can reason to what God is like for certain reasons. You know, like in the Kalam, we say that if the if all if the universe had a beginning, all space and time and energy had a beginning, then the cause of the universe must be immaterial and be all powerful, mm -hmm. and and be you know all knowing to be able to create all that. So. Uh, but the thing is, God is thought to be immaterial. So if God does know himself, 
But that doesn't have to have some kind of image that has an image of it and an image right. of it. So it was just really bizarre to hear what he mm -hmm. said about God's omniscience. And he, he, his, his idea of God's omnipotence, he says that power is inherently a physical thing. So right off the bat, he's, he's creating problems for himself mm -hmm. because we don't, it's not wishful thinking that God is immaterial. It's a conclusion right. that we can reach from reason alone, not right. to mention that the Bible says that God is spirit. Right. So uh, he obviously has issues with God being omnipotent because then he would need to be some kind of infinite physical force or something right. like that. So I just cleared up that uh, that's not what Christianity teaches. To say right. that God is omnipotent means that he can create anything that's conceivable, you know. Yeah. So, um, and, and then he gets into how God's attributes contradict each other. A really quick example is an argument he makes, what he calls the, uh, he has an acronym for it, the FANG argument. It's like uh, the uh, free will argument for the non-existence of God. And what he says is that God can't have free will and be all-knowing at the same time, because if he's all-knowing, that means that he knows everything he's going to do, but if he knows what he's going to do, then he doesn't have genuine choice. And um, I just, again, I think he's just misunderstanding Christianity and, and making conclusions that no Christians have, have made before. Mm -hmm. You know, to say that you know what someone is going to do doesn't necessarily mean they don't have a choice in it, you know. Thanks, Kyle. And uh, if you want to learn more about the some of the resources that Kyle has produced for us here at Reasons to Believe, go to our website reasons.org and search Kyle Keltz's name. And then also you will be able to find links to uh, Kyle's website and to other resources that Kyle has developed as part of his own personal ministry. And again, would encourage you to, to look for a copy of this book called Answering the Music Man, uh, a, 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 very a very good resource that's a great introduction to uh, Christian apologetics and to Christian theology too, it sounds like. So thanks again, Kyle. Hello, Jeff Zwerink, and welcome to Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we explore important scientific and philosophical ideas and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity. Today we're joined by Dr. Kyle Kelt, and we're going to be discussing whether Neanderthals had souls. Kyle, good to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. So give us a little bit of background. I know you've done some study on this. What all, what all is your background and, and why are you here today? Oh, yes. Well, I have a PhD in philosophy of religion. And uh, whenever I was uh, doing my dissertation for the PhD, I studied the problem of animal suffering. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's the, the problem of reconciling animal death with uh, God being all powerful, all good and all knowing. Mm, okay. uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of that uh, study had to do with the difference between humans and animals, because uh, we want to be uh, clear on the difference between humans and animals, because we think that uh, animal suffering is different from human suffering. Um, so uh, so because of that study, I, I studied animal minds and animal mm. cognition. And, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about Neanderthals today, and that has a lot of significance for that. So, uh, No, that does. That plays right in. So, right. so what, what is the evidence, or why do people talk about Neanderthals having souls? It seems like that's, why do we even ask that question? Okay, well, yeah, that's, that's a great question, because, uh, you know, when we, when we study uh, the natural history of the Earth, and, and we find uh, hominids like Neanderthals, um, you know, uh, scientists are, of, of course, like secular scientists are looking for this link mm -hmm. between uh, modern humans, homo sapiens, 
and our uh, our ancestors. Mm -hmm. So because they're trying to find a link between humans and that universal uh, common ancestor. Right, right. So they're looking for some link between us and you know apes or something like that. So uh, when they study uh, hominids and the behaviors that they were having, they're trying to see if this was just like one step down from us, or is there a gap between there? Mm. And so sometimes scientists are looking at the way uh, uh, Neanderthals are behaving, and they're trying to, some of them think that, no, maybe that's two steps ago, this wasn't like humans, and some of them are saying, no, we think that they're, they're exhibiting human behaviors. So they probably were like humans. Right. And then when you get into a Christian context, we're asking, you know, are they really like humans and what does it mean to be a human? So, so what behaviors did they find that give them a, uh, lead them to draw the conclusion that they're kind of like humans or just a step removed from? Um, there's, there's several types of behaviors that they're trying to attribute to Neanderthals and mm -hmm. other hominids. Uh, some of it is uh, uh, ornamentation. Uh, they think they were wearing, possibly wearing jewelry, mm -hmm. uh, burying the dead, uh, art like cave art and uh, using fire and making mm -hmm. tools are these main uh, behaviors that they're trying to attribute to Neanderthals to try to show that they had this, this more symbolic capabilities like human beings do. Because presumably this, the symbolic is what one of the things that would distinguish us or what we would argue distinguishes humans from all the animals. So if the animals are having symbolic behavior, that would make that connection tighter. Yes, for sure. So, um, you know, we, how strong is this evidence for symbolic soulish behavior in Neanderthals and maybe even some of the other hominids? Well, there's two main issues mm -hmm. with the evidence. You know, if, if, the, if the Neanderthals were here today, it would be a lot easier. We could just ask them or, <laughs> you know, just observe them and see right. if they had language, see if they had these more symbolic capabilities. But uh, since they're not here today, all we have to go off of is the indirect evidence that mm -hmm. we find in in archaeology and in, in the natural history of the earth. So uh, so we're looking at indirect evidence and there's issues with what we find. You know, when, uh, sometimes they're attributing uh, advanced tool use to Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. uh, issues with that, it, you know, it, it's hard to make a really hard conclusion that, that that's the only conclusion you can reach, okay. that they were using these advanced tools. Uh, because um, when, you, when you find a tool at some location, mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, uh, an issue is that uh, Neanderthals lived alongside human beings at one point. Yeah, it was like about 200,000 years to maybe 40,000 years ago oh, for yes. Neanderthals? I, I, th I think so. Okay. Uh, uh, they're, they're coming, uh, what was it, like 350,000 years okay. ago to uh, 40,000 okay. years ago. And we think human beings um, got here around 100, uh, Homo sapiens sapiens, right. 150 to 100,000 years ago. Right. So there's some overlap there. If you find a tool at some location, it's an open question as to whether the Neanderthals were using right, okay. that tool or if it was dropped by a human being mm -hmm. or, if, or if they came along after the hominids left. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's all sorts of issues with that. Right. Um, other, other things that um, have been attributed to them is like maybe they made instruments. Okay. Um, for example, they found what they thought were bone flutes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, at first, they saw these holes in these bones, mm -hmm. and they thought, well, the Neanderthals must have been using these as flutes or mu musical instruments. But upon further study, they found uh, they think it was more likely just to be animals coming across right, okay. the bones and biting into it. So there's a lot of uh, issues with determining 
and, and making hard conclusions as to what the evidence that we see uh, really warrants. Okay, so, so there's this question of does the evidence actually point to that was Neanderthal behavior or might it have been something else? Yes. So, so if it is Neanderthal behavior, how does that, how do we as, as Christians, does that cause problems for us or how do we think about that? I don't think so. You know, so even if we really think that they were using tools, mm -hmm. they were maybe they had a little bit of art or or, mm -hmm. or or jewelry or some of these other activities that would seem to indicate that they had symbolic thought. An issue is uh, this is why I don't think that Neanderthals um, exhibiting these behaviors would be problematic. Is that whenever you do study animal cognition. Uh, we have found in the animal kingdom a lot of behaviors that are similar to the things being attributed to Neanderthals. Mm. So, okay. um, you know, w one of my favorite example, uh, examples is the bower bird. Mm -hmm. It's a type of bird that builds this really intricate nest mm -hmm. in their mating rituals. Right. And uh, if you came across one of these nests, you might assume like some child or, or maybe some like skilled artist was there uh, uh, making these really intricate nests. but. They not only make these these nests on the ground that are really amazing uh, mm -hmm. as as it stands, but also uh, they they decorate them. Right. Okay. They'll go find flowers or other objects that are certain colors, and not only do they they bring them back to the nest, but they'll re they'll arrange them according to color and all sorts of different patterns. Mm -hmm. um, th they'll chew up uh, flowers and then spit that out to use as paint to right. paint their nest. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just pretty a, elaborate behavior. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, in apes, we see that they understand, uh, they can predict wildfires. Mm -hmm. They can, they know what fire is and they interact with it in mm -hmm. certain ways. I mean, I, I was watching a video this morning on YouTube of an ape uh, starting, it was taught this by a human, but it, it was, it started a fire. It built a fire and then roasted some marshmallows. <laughs> nice. You know, yeah. And okay. uh, there's all, there's all sorts of other animals that do similar behaviors, you know. Well, uh, I know there's a fish that makes this very elaborate sand, uh, sand. So yeah, you, there is a lot yeah. of behavior as you're describing. So. Yes. Yes. So because, um, you know, uh, no one's really arguing that these animals are self-aware or these okay. animals are capable of these higher order uh, mm -hmm. symbolic activities uh, because uh, the, the, major, the major thing that I think that leads to the conclusion that Neanderthals weren't like humans mm -hmm. is because of advancements, uh, a lack of advancement that we see. Okay. Um, I think, you know, like Heidelbergens, Homo Heidelbergensis was around from like 900,000 years ago to 200,000 years ago, so it's around mm -hmm. 700,000 years. Uh, Neanderthals are around, like we said, about 300,000 years. Right. But when you when you look at all the evidence we find, you don't. They had these rudimentary tools, mm -hmm. but the the um, there's no uh, evidence of an advancement okay. of culture. There's no uh, technological improvements. They just mm -hmm. use the same old tools the whole 300,000 years. Okay. I mean, that's a little oversimplification, but that's basically what you see. There's no advancement. So it sounds uh, almost like a more an innate uh, ability rather than a learned creative ability like we would see in humans. Yes, because, you know, when humans show up 100,000, 150,000 years ago, now today, uh, we started from scratch. Now today we've got the atom bomb. You know, we're sending we're sending rovers to Mars. Right. Yeah. We're creating works of art that we, you know, depictions of things that we've never seen. Mm -hmm. All of you know, and we have language, of course, and, and technology. So all of this is proof that we have symbolic mm -hmm. thought. Whenever you see uh, hominids being around for hundreds of thousands of years with no advancement, it just leads to the conclusion that it was all 
their activity is more explainable through innate behavior rather than creating culture and, and technology and things like that. Well, thanks, Kyle. I really appreciate your comments. It is pretty fascinating when we look at Neanderthals and other, or other hominids, the level of ability that they have. They build fires, they decorate their nests, they, they do other things like this. But yet when we look closely, what we find is that behavior seems to be more innate rather than flowing from a creative soul like in humanity. You know, I'd encourage you to go to reasons.org. There's a great article that helps equip you with more information on how to think about whether Neanderthals have souls. It's called, Were Neanderthals People Too? Check out that article because it'll help equip you to be able to be part of this important discussion and see how you can share Christ even in these difficult topics. And that's all the time we have for 2019. We hope this episode has helped equip you to share your faith with compassion and confidence. And, you know, we hope you learned a lot about the soul. We learned a lot about human behavior and, that's right. and Neanderthal behavior and the, was, kind of the distinction. Right. Yeah. It was really interesting to learn about how um, the way that they would use tools over like a very long period of time without being able to really adapt and advance their kind of right. like ancient technology. Right, and the, the difference that like Neanderthals weren't creating culture in the same way that humans are. So definitely learned a lot about soul. We hope you learned a lot as well. And you know, we hope that you will stay in touch with us by finding us on social media, first subscribing to the show, and then also finding us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at 2819show. And if you want the audio version of the show, you can find us on most major podcast services. Just search Reasons to Believe Podcast. See you next week. See ya.